Thank you for joining us this morning. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you're here. And if it's not, we're glad that you're back. So if you guys have your Bibles, if you want to open to John chapter 6, we're going to continue studying through the book of John. And often when people have some sort of wealth, they plan for their estate. And often this comes in two forms, either a revocable trust or an irrevocable trust. A revocable trust is basically the grantor retains all rights to change the trust at any time. So he can set something into a trust, but he has the right to go in and change it and, and change who it's being given to or whatever he chooses to do. These are more common since it gives the creator more control. But there is another form of trust, and it's called an irrevocable trust, where the grantor puts all of his assets, whatever assets he chooses, into this trust, and he is no longer the owner of the assets that he puts into this irrevocable trust. It cannot be changed. The beneficiaries can change it through court of law, but the grantor himself, the one who worked for all of the assets, cannot change it. And what we're going to see this morning is Jesus has offered us an irrevocable offer. And that's the title of this message, an irrevocable offer. We are going to see that Jesus has come to give an offer that cannot be changed. That whoever would come to him would be fully and completely satisfied. It is an offer that he cannot take back. It has been purchased on the cross with his blood. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open to John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 22. We know last week we studied that Jesus had fed 5,000 or more with five loaves of bread and two fish, and then he walked on water and went across the sea. So we pick it up in verse 22, and it says, On the next day the crowd remained on the other side of the sea and saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. But that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So here's a crowd, and they just had seen Jesus do a miracle. And the crowd is like, where did Jesus go? I know that there was one boat here, the disciples have left, the disciples are gone, and Jesus is also gone, but he did not get in the boat. So logically, where is Jesus? Because there's no way that he went to the other side with the disciples because the boat left without him. So they're confused. They're trying to deductively figure out reason. Where in the world could Jesus be? Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus said to them, as he had just walked on water, Oh, last night, when you were not paying attention and that big storm came, I decided to go for a walk. It was great. The waves made it for incredible cardio. Right? No, he didn't say that. He actually did not even address their question, which is interesting. What Jesus really said was Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking... You are seeking not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. This is an interesting answer. 
Jesus does not even address the very fact of their question. Jesus, how in the world did you get from one side of the lake to the other? Why? They had just witnessed a miracle, so why would they have believed that he walked on water? So he doesn't even address the question, but he says this. You came to me not because of what I did, but because you ate your fill of loaves. See, the crowd was not coming to Jesus because of what he had to offer or who he was or who he said he was. They were coming because their flesh had been satisfied. They had a full belly. That's why they were seeking after Jesus, was not because of his miracle, not because of who he was, because their flesh had been fully satisfied. Verse 27, Jesus says this, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. See, Jesus is saying that don't work for the things of this world. Don't work for the things that fill your belly. Don't work for the things that satisfy your flesh. Work for the things of God. What are the, what are the things of God that Jesus says? He's basically saying, Jesus, you're not, you're, you're, he's basically rebuking them because they're purely materialistic mindset of what he had just done, and they were coming to him for that reason. Not because of who he was. Verse 28 says, then they said to him, or before we go on, it says he set his seal. What does this mean? The purpose of a seal in this day was either the king or the emperor or someone who was sending out a letter or something of great importance would set his seal on the envelope. On this seal was a signet ring. It would be a certain stamp indicating who this was coming from. If the seal was broken, they would, the receiver would know that it had been tampered with. But the point of the seal was to mark it with validity, that the letter was valid from who it was coming for. Jesus is saying that God the Father has set his seal on Jesus, saying, he is my son, he is the only one to offer life, he is the only one to satisfy your soul, I am stamping my seal on him, and it is irrevocable. That's what Jesus is saying, is that God has set his seal on him. Verse 28, then they said to him, and don't miss this. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Basically, God, tell us what to do and we will perform it. In fact, we'll perform it amazingly. You just tell us what to do. Isn't it interesting how we as humans are always trying to work to please God, work to do things for God, work to like prove our merit or work for all of these things? The crowd is no different. They, they made the statement, what must we be doing do to be doing the works of God? What did Jesus say? This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. He's saying you can't do anything. There's no work on this planet that can give merit to what I am doing. You cannot work for anything. Why? Because God did the work in sending me. God did the work in sending his son. All you have to do is believe. For the crowd, this is like, there's no way. We have to do something. I mean, I, can't, I have to do something to earn this gift. 
And then verse 30, they said to him again, Then what sign do you do, Jesus, that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Can't you just see Jesus like facepalm, like, good grief. I literally just fed 5,000 or more people with five loaves and two fish. I literally just walked on water, and you're asking me what perform I need to show you to prove my merit? I can just see him like, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with these people? And I have a feeling he looks at me that way, too, sometimes. Like, Luke, what are you, like, really? Because they're all focused on what they can do, how they are performing for God. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And then they said this, as it is written, he gave bread from heaven. I want us to see this, that this is really a biblical example of proof texting, what this crowd just did. What is a proof text? A proof text is taking something in scripture ripping it from its context and trying to communicate it in a way that is, it is not meant to be communicated. It is actually changing the subject of the text. It is changing something about the text to fit an agenda. What did Jesus... They, they literally said, that as it is written, what, what was written? Nehemiah 9.15 says, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. If we look at the context of Nehemiah 9, this context is all about God. It's not Moses. The crowd is saying basically that Moses gave us bread from heaven to eat. How do we know? Because Jesus addresses it in the next verse. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives the true bread from heaven. See, the crowd had taken this verse, taken what God had done, and said, Moses gave us bread. See, Jesus, as it is written. You know what one of the greatest proof texts in America is? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But if we look at the context of this, and we see that Paul is preaching this from prison to the Philippians... And and he's saying, I'm actually in chains. The reason I'm in chains is for the advancement of the gospel. But if we look at the context around this verse, it says this. Not that I'm, Paul says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be what? Content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, Paul is saying he he can do all things. Why? Because he is content in all situations. Why? Because Christ gives him strength to stand. So often we see this tattooed on an athlete, Philippians 4, 13. Oh, man, this is going to give me the strength to kick the winning field goal. Or make the winning three-pointer. And I've often thought, well, what if the defender of the one shooting the three or the defense in football also has the same tattoo on their arm that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God is not answering one of their prayers, if that's the case. Right? It's like this battle in the heavens of, oh, man, God's like, oh, I I don't know if to let them win it with this field goal or just kind of let the deep. I don't know. No, that's not what he's saying. See, that is a proof text. 
This, what Paul is saying, is he has learned in all things to be content. What, the, what Jesus is saying is, Moses did not give you the bread. My Father in heaven gave you the bread. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always, still thinking carnally. Reminds me of the woman at the well. We studied that a few weeks ago. This woman says, give me this water that will cleanse my thirst forever. And Jesus said, I'm not, giving you, I'm not giving you physical water. I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you spiritual water. Jesus saying this, the same thing here. These crowd are asking for this bread to fill them. And Jesus goes on to say this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, don't miss this, shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we're going to come back to this and talk about this a little bit. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus, this really, we're going to talk about this more next week, but this is really encompassing around this doctrine of election that God, no one can come to God on their own terms, that the Father must draw. And Jesus is saying, if you come, anyone that the Father gives me will never be cast out. Their salvation is secure. I have set my seal on them because I have set it on Jesus and his finished work on the cross. It is secure. See, you can't lose your salvation. The question is, have you ever really been saved to begin with? You can't lose your salvation. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever, whoever comes to me will never be cast out. Verse 38, for I have not come down from heaven for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Referencing back to what we read a couple weeks ago in John 6, 12, where Jesus is saying, pick up all the extra bread. I said a couple of weeks ago that he was referring to this moment that no one could be lost, that Jesus came to save all who would come to him, that none of them would be lost. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but what? Raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. What? What is the will of God? that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of God, that Jesus, as he came to earth, would lose none of all that would come to him seeking for eternal life. So as we look at this, one of the ways that I read scripture is when I'm studying this, I think, okay, God, what does this say about you? What does it say about me? And sometimes I just feel like God is probing me to ask some questions of myself as I read the text. It's not always a statement to me. Often it's a question to me. And I, if we look at verse 35, I believe that this whole discourse comes to one 
pivotal moment that causes us to ask two questions. The verse is this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So there's two questions I want to ask of myself, and I want you to ask them of yourselves this morning. The first one is this, why have you come? And I don't mean why have you come to church or why have you come to listen to a not so great preacher preach? Like why have you come? Why have you come to Jesus? Why? See, the crowds went to great lengths to pursue him. They scrambled all around on the one side of the lake looking for him everywhere they went and they couldn't find him. So then they got in a boat and they rowed all the way across the boat or all the All the way, yeah, the boat, they rode all the way across the boat in the boat. No, they got in the boat and rode across the lake looking for Jesus. And then they got to the other side and they still searched for Jesus. And when they found him, what did Jesus say? You're not coming to look for me for who I am. You're coming to me because your bellies were full. So why have you come to him? for the satisfaction of your flesh, for the desires of your flesh, or because of who Jesus is, because of the offer that he has given you. See, once they found him, Jesus exposed why they were seeking for him. They were not pursuing him in order that they might know him. They were pursuing him so that they might receive what they wanted from him, the satisfaction of their flesh. So I ask you, Why have you come to Jesus? What motivates your pursuit of him? Because it's easy, even as a believer, to begin to pursue him for the things that are not actually of him or the things that he is not. We pursue him for blessing and not for who he is. That's what the crowd did. They pursued him not because of the miracle they had just seen, but because their bellies were full. See, we need to be a people that pursue God for who he is. Because he's given us one thing, his son. So the question is, this morning, why have you come to him? In high school, there was one thing that I loved to do, and it was look for antlers in the spring and chase after big bull elk or big deer or something. And I loved God. I got saved at a very young age. But I caught myself going into the woods and thinking, man, if I would just serve God more, I would find a giant non-typical set right there. (laughs) Or if I would go to church enough, This 360-inch bull in the swan, which anyone who hunts a swan knows this is impossible, would somehow stand in front of me. And it was like this subconscious thing like, God, I am doing these things so that I can receive this. And it's funny how God works that I can stumble around through the swan and not find a shed and not see a bull anywhere. And he uses that to capture my heart and say, Luke, are you pursuing me for me? Are you pursuing me because you want a stupid piece of bone? And it was like, whoa. 
Maybe, maybe I need to check this. Maybe I need to check this, God. See, I wasn't coming to him because of my love for him, although I did love him. I was coming to him because of my love for sheds. See, if the reason we're coming to him, even in the business world, is for a blessing on your business, you're not coming to him for who he is. You're coming to him because you love money. See, if we're serving God just to say, God, I'm going to come to you, and God, would you just bless my business? God may bless your business. God is a God of abundant blessing. But if the motive of coming to Jesus is so that your business would be blessed, you do not love him first. You love money first. If I come to Jesus because I want a big shed, I do not love Jesus first. I love the shed first because that is what I'm pursuing. That is the motive of my heart. See, your motive reveals your heart. And the crowd's motive was that their belly would be full. They didn't care who Jesus was. They just cared that their flesh was satisfied. See, Jesus is saying, though, if you will come to me, not for the satisfaction of your flesh, but for the fulfillment of your soul, you will never be thirsty. You will be completely satisfied. He will give you everything if you will come to him for who he is. He says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? He's saying, I am the one that fulfills I am the one that satisfies, but you must come to Jesus on his terms and not yours. So why have you come to him? Maybe you've been saved for a long time and like me, and you start to wonder, these, these little things of the world start to creep in, and you look and say, man, God, like, I'm missing it. You have to... I have to check it. Why, why am I planting a church? Is it so that the numbers would grow? Or is it because I am so committed to my Savior for one reason, not because of what he can give me, because of what he has already given me in himself and set me free? See, we come to Jesus on his terms, not for the satisfaction of our flesh, but for the fulfillment of our soul. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel is it does not hinge on us. It's all on him. He's the one who came to set you free. The second question is this, and this one, I mean, I had to work through this one this week myself. On what do you believe? So on what do you believe? See, the crowd came to Jesus for the satisfaction of their flesh. And then you look here. After they came to him, their first thing was this. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Have you come? Are you believing on your works or are you believing on the work of God? Because they're totally different. See, the work of God is that Jesus has given himself. He has given a free gift. It's the work of God. But we tend to put all of our belief in our works, all the things that we think we can do to find right standing with God. Jesus says you can do nothing but believe on the work of God. Jesus' finished work, that's all you have. 
So quit trying to labor, quit trying to struggle, quit trying to measure up. Because once we're redeemed, these works, these service projects, whatever it is, flow out of us. Why? Because we know the weight by which we've been forgiven. But our works have nothing to do with our salvation. See, we can begin to believe that our works have some sort of merit in themselves. That's what the crowd had seen. Are you believing in your works for the merit of your salvation? Or are you believing in the work of Christ for the merit of your salvation? And if you've been in church any time, I already know what you're thinking. Luke, that is the dumbest question on the earth because I obviously know what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. Obviously. Do you know how long I've been in church? By grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. And my question is this, well, I don't think it's actually a dumb question. Because you can know this verse and not believe this verse. It's very easy. See, we have a tendency to base our merit on what we do for God. It's kind of like a grocery list. My wife loves lists. I was actually joking with her this morning because we're laying in bed like before we get up and she opens up her phone and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm making a list. I'm like, oh great, what's on your list? And I'm not kidding you, these are some of them on our list. Do my hair. Brush my teeth. Clean the house. Eat breakfast. Put on my socks. No, the socks one is not true. Like, the list goes on and on and on. And the reason she likes to create a list is because she likes the satisfaction of checking it off when she's done. And to me, I'm thinking, well, I, cannot, I, wouldn't, I can't even comprehend making a list to say, brush your teeth, check. Take a shower, check. Like, I just can't. But she loves lists. But the point being... We so often do this in our walk with God. See, we think that we our works have something to do with the merit of our salvation. Our works have something to do with how God views us and how he sees us. And we really do the exact same thing. Read my Bible. Check. Go to church. Check. Service project. Check. Give. Check. No pun intended. Pretend that to love someone who is hard to love, check. Shoveled snow for my neighbor, check. Don't kick my dog when he tore into the trash, check. Like, whatever it is, we go through these things and we say, God, I must be doing all right because I've done the whole list. I've done it all. I've even checked it off. And God reminds you, oh, that's great, but last time I checked... The merit of my grace extended to you. The merit of salvation had nothing to do with you. And you trying to labor for that and you try to do things for that is actually a shame because it shows me you don't understand the free gift of God. That if we would come to him, if we would allow him to set us free, that he does the work. See, our faith is not meant to be a grocery list of checklists that we check off to, like, think that we're so great about ourselves. We can't do it. 
And the longer your list becomes and the more checks you put on it, I promise you this, the more you will burn out and the more you will not be satisfied. That's not what Jesus is saying when he says, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It has nothing to do with a list. It has to do with one work, the work of God, sending his son Jesus to atone and forgive sin. That's the only work. So if you have a list this morning, I encourage you to tear it up and throw it away. Because see, the way God works is you come to him and he will satisfy. You come to him and he will do the works through you. See, that's not, James is not saying that, that works are just null and void and they have no purpose. He's Essentially, if we, look, if we read James, he's saying, if you will come to Jesus, if you will be transformed by Jesus, the works that will come forth from you as a result of your salvation will far surpass anything you can do on your own. And they are actually eternal. Your little stupid laundry list is temporal. It's carnal. So quit striving for it. Believe on me and you shall never thirst. Here's a litmus test that I was thinking through this week that exposes really where, what your true response to the gospel is. If your faith is merely a checklist or a list to be checked, you are believing on your works. If it's a genuine response to what Jesus has done in your life, you are believing on Christ and the work of God. Just something to ponder as you go through the week, like, God, am I doing all these things? And they may be very good things. But am I doing them because some, for some reason I think that I'm getting closer to you and I'm earning my right to be with you and I'm earning my salvation. And if I do all the right things, you will bless my flesh. It's not how it works. And this will never satisfy. See, what Jesus is saying, and those who believe in me and my finished work, they shall never be thirsty. But if you are believing on your own works, you will never be satisfied. That's how it works. It seems simple, but it's how it works. See, and then Jesus goes on to say this. Those who truly come to him shall never be cast out. And those who truly believe in him shall be given eternal life. And what? Be raised on the last day. Think about the miracle of this. That God really does not expect anything from us other than to surrender to him and believe on the name of his son. And when we do that, he does everything else through us. Because if you are trying to build a list, it will never be long enough. If you are trying to check off your list, you'll never have enough ink in your pen because that's not the offer that Jesus gives. He says, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. He's not saying physically. He's saying he will fully satisfy. Whoever believes on me shall never thirst. He's not saying you'll never not be thirsty. In fact, I'm getting kind of thirsty right now. He's saying, if you believe on me, you will 
always be satisfied. If we as the church could get this, if we as the church would really see God for who he is, and there may be some people in this room that grew up in the church and been hurt by the church, and maybe they grew up in a church where it was all based on works. It was all based on all the things that you need to do for God so that you might receive this merit of salvation. You keep climbing, you keep climbing, you keep climbing, and you keep climbing, and finally you will burn out and fall. Hear this. It's not your works. It's the work of God. And he says, just come to me and believe me Believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And watch as I do the impossible in your life. And if you're in this room this morning, and if you're hungry spiritually, if you're thirsty spiritually, Jesus extends this irrevocable offer to you. It cannot be changed. It cannot be thwarted. Your works cannot change it. His offer is this. Come to me. Come to me with your baggage. Come to me with your pain. Come to me with your struggle. Come to me with the things you don't understand. Come to me with your life circumstances. Come to me with your lack of what you need. Come to me with it all. If you will come to me, you will never be hungry because I will fill the void in your soul that can only be filled by me. This is the beauty of salvation. We see it here. First, you must come to Jesus, then you must believe in him. So he's saying, as you come to me, you'll never be hungry. Then, as you come to me, it's very simple. Believe on me. Believe that I said I am who I said I am. And I will satisfy the yearning and the longing of your soul that this world cannot fill. See, your checklist is a square peg, and you're trying to ram it into a round hole, and it doesn't work. What works is coming to God on his terms, coming to him for who he is, allowing him to satisfy you. And this does not happen overnight. <laughs> I'm not going to stand up here and give you some emotional spiel on how if you just come to him and you leave these doors, Christmas is going to be great and the snow is going to fall and your life's going to come into order because that's not what Jesus promises anywhere in Scripture. He says, even in your circumstance, even in your pain, in fact, when you come to me, it's probably going to get more difficult, but when you come to me, I will fill you with a peace that passes all understanding, with a hope that cannot be thwarted. If you will come to me and receive this irrevocable offer, because see, the offer doesn't depend on us. It's God's to give. And he sealed it and said, all you have to do is come and believe. And you will be satisfied. So I don't know where you're at in this room this morning. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time. And you just need to rethink, why have I come to him and on what am I believing or maybe you have never been saved, and maybe you've grown up in the church, and you come to him and say, Jesus, maybe for the first time I actually see that, that I thought I was saved, but I was coming to you all along for this blessing that I thought you would give me if I surrendered my life. And he's saying, just come to me as you are. Believe that I am who you, I said I am. 
Turn from your sin. Turn to me. Believe on the finished work of cross. And let me move through you in ways that you will never believe. This is the greatest offer of hope the world has ever heard. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more you can strive for. Because Jesus has finished it on the cross. He sealed redemption when he died on the cross, when he went to the grave, when he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. He sealed it. The offer is irrevocable. It cannot be changed. So it all depends on, have you come and will you believe? And if you will, you will be satisfied. If the band wants to come up. God, I thank you that you are such a good God. God, I thank you that you're a God that we can come to, that often we can scream at God, that we can yell at, that we can say, I do not understand what is going on in my life. It feels like complete turmoil. It feels like complete chaos, God. If you were good, how can this be? God, thank you for being a God that we can come to, that we can lay our burdens at your feet, that we can lay our pain at your feet, and that you can change us. God, I pray for the person in this room that is deeply hurting. Maybe this Christmas season is hard for them. Maybe there's a circumstance in life that has come upon them. They're just questioning God, saying, if you're good, how can this be? God, I have done this, and I have done that, and I have done everything for you, yet my life is spiraling out of control. God, I pray that in this moment, by the power of your Spirit, that you would show them, God, that like the crowd, maybe the whole reason is you're trying to get their attention to say, listen, the reason you've been coming to me is so that your flesh should be satisfied. But I did not come to satisfy your flesh. I came to fulfill your soul. So God, if there's someone in this room that is just in deep pain, God, would you speak to them in a way that only you can? God, it's only by the power of your spirit that a heart of stone can become a heart of flesh. So God, I'm asking you this morning for that person that is hurting, that you would speak so softly and so clear, come to me and you shall never hunger. Believe on me and you shall never thirst. And God, just grant a peace that passes all understanding, a hope that would be an anchor to their soul. God, that despite circumstances, despite pain, despite rejection, that you will never reject them. Why? Because you have given an irrevocable offer of life and satisfaction and hope and peace. If they would just come and believe. Thank you for how you're moving in this place, God. Do the things that only you can do in this moment, in this time. Speak to the brokenness, the most broken heart, God. Heal it. And restore the years that the locusts have destroyed. God, we praise you because you are worthy of praise. We worship you because you are worthy of worship. 
We give you everything, God, because we are yours. Would we give you the glory that is due your name? And would you be pleased with what goes on in this place? And would you heal and bind up the brokenhearted? And would you challenge your church to check ourselves on what we have believed and why we have come to you? And watch as it changes a world around us. God, you are faithful. We love you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.